0: To saving animals with Blank Park Zoo, I'm Ryan Bickle. On today's show, we have Christine Micheletti, who is a master's student at Iowa State University, and she spent a couple of months in Senegal um, doing research uh, on chimpanzees. So, welcome to the show, Christine.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And Jesse Lowry, our director of research and conservation, is here. Jesse, tell us a little bit about Blank Park Zoo.
2: Sure. Uh, Blank Park Zoo is um, accredited by the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, and it's the only accredited zoo in the state of Iowa. We've got about half a million people in our audience per year, which gives us a great opportunity um, and actually responsibility to um, give those messages of conservation and how we can all work to save wildlife and wild places. And um, we do that in many different ways. The mission of Blank Park Zoo is to inspire an appreciation of the natural world through conservation, education, research and recreation, And I see it as a window to the wild, a place to invite your family and your friends and Come have a fun, affordable day out. We've uh, surveyed our audience, and we know that's what they're looking for—to come here and have a fun day out. But while they're here, we want to drive some kind of conservation action. We want to use that sense of awe that we all get when we see beautiful animals like California sea lions and Amur tigers and the giraffe here at Blank Park Zoo, and really um, incite some kind of conservation action, some kind of behavior change that folks can do in their everyday life. That's going to make a difference to the world. And so Blank Park Zoo works on this um, in many different ways. Of course, we try to be as green and sustainable as we can in our day-to-day operations, and we encourage our audience to do that as well. Being green has a direct impact on wildlife, here in Iowa especially. We uh, get the most bang for our buck by working locally. We have a couple different projects, like Upcycle, where we remove invasive plant species from local parks. A couple of examples would be honeysuckle and mulberry. These just so happen to be a favorite tree item of our animals as well. So we can take those plant species out of the woodlands and give spaces for the native plants to grow and bring back some preferred food items for our animals as well. Of course, we've got our Plant Grow Fly project, which encourages folks to plant butterfly gardens, whether it's a single pot or an entire entire prairie restoration. And you can find out more about our conservation projects at blankparksu.com. One of the major things that a modern zoo can do to save animals in the wild is the support of field projects, those organizations and individuals that are out on the front lines in the range countries of some of the animals that we have here at Blank Park Zoo. We give between eighty dollars and $100,000 in grants to research organizations throughout the world. Uh, some big ones are International Rhino Foundation. Of course, we've got rhinos here. We support the Hornbill Research Foundation in Thailand, the Snow Leopard Trust in Mongolia, uh, Conservation Fusion and Madagascar, and all of these projects have um, animals that we have here at Blank Park Zoo that you can actually come and see the ring-tailed lemurs, and you can come and see the rhino. But we also support projects for animals that we don't have here at Blank Park Zoo. One great example is our support of the Chimpanzee Sanctuary and Wildlife Conservation Trust. Uh, This is an organization in Uganda that works to decrease all kinds of human wildlife conflict and works to keep chimpanzees in their native habitat, but also runs a sanctuary for those um, who have been um, forced out of their habitat for various reasons. And we've supported them for for about five years now. Um, With us today again is Christine, and she's actually one of my former conservation interns. And we can talk about the conservation internship later um, in the show today, but why, why we have her here is to talk about her experience with chimpanzees in the wild. And so welcome again, Christine, to the show. Thank you. We're so excited to have you. First, let's talk a little bit about your background, um, mm-hmm. where you're from and your education, and what gave you that passion for, for chimps specifically and, and wildlife in general.
1: Yeah. So I'm from the Chicago, uh, Chicago region. I came out to Iowa a few years ago from my undergrad I did um, uh, I got a bachelor's in zoology at Drake University and then I moved up to Ames to get my master's in anthropology at Iowa State. Um, anthropology has a few different uh, sectors I guess and I'm studying biological anthropology specifically which encompasses primatology and um, human evolution um, so that's kind of how I got into the studying. Chimps aspect. Um, I've always loved animals, and I f- I find chimpanzees and all primates really just so fascinating because they are so similar to humans. And chimpanzees really allow us to to kind of study them and maybe understand a little bit about our behaviors and our you know evolutionary time frame and behaviors from our ancestors. And I think that's really cool.
2: And that's something that we have in common. I have a biological anthropology degree as well. And my favorite class in my education was called the human animal and just talked about why, why we're humans and why the things that we do, you know, why we do what we do. And so Mm -hmm. that was so interesting for me. And and I love learning about evolution and um, all the primates. And I think that probably uh, great ape intelligence is what really fueled the fire in me to become a conservationist. Mm -hmm. Can you think of anything in your childhood that really uh, inspired you to be a conservationist?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, I don't think there was any one thing. I mean, like I said, I've loved animals my entire life. Anytime I would go on vacation or um, go to a zoo, there were a few zoos around us. So every summer I would beg my parents to take me. And I love just being able to go and look at the animals. And wherever we went, if there was a gift shop that had a figurine or a stuffed animal or something, I got it. And so my room when I was little was just full of animals. Um and I it, it just always stuck with me. It, never, it was never something that I grew tired of or got bored of. I think it was just something that was always ingrained in me. I had so many still have so many books about animals and just conservation and all, anything really that involved nature and animals and yeah, I don't think it was any one thing that really kind of Stuck out to me as a defining moment.
2: One of my idols, and I'm sure this is true for you as well, is Dr. Jane Goodall. Of course, and she often talks about how uh, many, many of the researchers that work for her got their inspiration from zoos, and mm-hmm. so I always love to hear that story. Yeah. So let's talk about your time in Senegal. How did you, this was part of your master's research? It was? And um, how did it come about that you were going to go to Senegal? Did you have different projects that you could pick from? Tell us a little bit about that process.
1: Yeah, so at the start of my master's degree, I really all I knew that I wanted to do was study primates, um, ideally chimps or gorillas. Uh, my advisor, Jill Preets, actually has a site in Senegal, and she said that if I wanted, I could go do research out there with her or at her site. Um, I had the choice of going really anywhere in the world if if I chose to. Um, but I thought having her there really kind of with me through the process would help me establish myself a little bit more as a researcher and help me answer any questions and overcome any hurdles that I encountered in the field because this was my first field experience. Um, so I decided just to kind of go with her and go to her. I was staying at her site, but I was studying a different group of chimps. Um, And yeah, she kind of helped me along the way and kind of planted a few ideas in my brain about what to do and how to go about doing it. And I mean, it's really all because of her that I ended up going to Senegal.
2: Can you talk a little bit more about Jill Preetz? Uh, She was one of our speakers for the speaker series here at Blank Park Zoo Mm -hmm. about a year ago, and she is uh, just an inspiration, I think, to scientists and women scientists and has done some amazing work. So talk to us a little bit about what it's like to have Jill Preetz as your mentor.
1: Oh, my gosh. It's it's an incredible experience. She's one of the leading primatologists in the field right now. Um, She... Has been at Fongoli, which is her site in Senegal for, oh gosh, I want to say at least 15 years now. Um, so she's really established there, and she has come out with so many groundbreaking papers and concepts. And it's, it, it's kind of like studying under you know celebrity almost. I mean, I mean the first time, first couple times, I got to talk with her and work with her during my my uh, degree. It was kind of like inspiring and just like, yeah, like I was almost talking to a celebrity, like, oh my gosh, you're, you're doing all of this and you're so great. And so just, you know, respected in the field. And it's really been a great process and great experience to have her as my mentor and advisor throughout this whole thing.
2: And she does research on chimp tool use. Is that right?
1: Yep. That's part of her research. She is studying the same. um, She's been studying the same group of chimps for her entire time out in Senegal um And yeah, chimp tool use is probably one of her main focuses, and she actually found some really groundbreaking um results out there that has never been seen before, at least not in West Africa um so yeah it was it was great to be working with her and be a
2: part of that and Before we move on, is the groundbreaking research that you're talking about have to do with bush babies? Wasn't there some chimp tool use um, that had to do with the
1: termite mounds? Yep, so chimpanzees a lot of times will use small sticks to um, poke them into termite mounds and kind of get termites to eat. And then um, she discovered that they will also take longer sticks and kind of fashion them into spears and poke them into uh, tree cavities in order to try and spear a bush baby for meat. And that really... To my knowledge, hasn't been found anywhere else.
2: That's really, really interesting. So, tell us a little bit about how you um, narrowed down your your research focus mm-hmm. and how you uh, started to prepare to go to Senegal.
1: Yeah. So, I knew when I started looking at coming up with projects that I wanted to look into some type of human primate interaction. Um, I had a whole list of possibilities and. It was it was really difficult to try and narrow them down because I wanted to do all of them, but you know, and for a master's project you can really only do one. Um, so I sat down with Jill, and she told me that there was um, a large kind of gold rush um, in the past 20 or so years out in Senegal, and so small uh, artisanal, which are sometimes illegal my- gold mines, have been popping up throughout the region that she works in. Um, So she asked me if it would be something that I'd be interested in to look at how the miners' impacts on the environment are influencing chimpanzee behavior. Um, So I decided to kind of look at how the presence of humans is influencing chimpanzee nesting behavior specifically because chimps do build nests in trees every night to sleep in. It keeps them off the ground away from predators and all that kind of stuff. So I just kind of went out and I was looking for nests. Pretty much for two months, recording any type of nest that ch- any chip nest that I found, um, the tree species that they were in, and the size of the tree, so that I could determine if the chimps had a preference for you know what kind of tree they nest in, and then I was also looking for any evidence of human presence, so whether that be actually people or a village or a trail, really anything that indicated that there was a human there, um, and then when I got back, I was able to kind of plot that all of that stuff on a map and see where the chimps were nesting, where the humans were. Um, And then I was given data from previous years from the same site to see um, where the chimps were nesting then compared to now. And I actually found that they they have been moving quite a bit from where they were originally um, spotted about 18 years ago. Um, So that was very eye-opening to see how much they had moved in the last... 15 to 18 years. So could you see a correlation between human disturbances and human settlements mm-hmm. and where
2: the chimpanzees have moved?
1: Yeah, there was definitely, I can't say for sure, for certain yet that there, the reason the chimps have moved is because of humans. There could be other factors as well, but the amount of human evidence that I found would is very convincing. But yeah, I can't say 100% certain yet, but I would not be surprised if it did end up being human reasoning.
0: How, how often do chimps move when there's not the presence of humans?
1: Um, it also depends on the season and the food availability. So there, in Senegal, there's two primary seasons. There's a wet season and a dry season. Um, and then obviously that impacts what foods are available where. Um, so depending on if it's a wet season and there's certain fruits or leaves available in one area, they'll probably move there versus, you know, an area that doesn't have as much food or water or whatever other resources they need at that time.
0: And describe, describe you, you call them nests, but mm-hmm. describe what that is.
1: Yeah, so it's essentially the same thing as a bird nest. Um, the chimps will take tree branches and kind of fold them over one another and just kind of weave them together to build this round it's essentially a very large bird nest, and then they'll line it with um, leaves sometimes to make it more comfortable.
2: Do they come back to the same nest, or do they make a new one every night?
1: They typically make a new one every night. They can come back to the same one, but it's not very common.
2: Tell us more about the gold mining.
1: Yeah, Um. so the gold mining, it it's it's really grown quite a bit in the last 20 years or so. Um, most of the mines in this area at least are artisanal small-scale mines meaning it's local people that are kind of working on them Um, there's not a ton of government involvement um, so they usually just kind of do whatever they can to uh, extract the the gold and then they'll take it to the um, Gambia River or whatever river is close by and they'll do a certain process to kind of purify it, and that creates another issue with um, mercury contamination because they'll use mercury to kind of purify it and everything. Um, but the mining does involve some, you know, habitat destruction and loss because they need to create the mine wherever the gold is, and quite often that's in the middle of a forest. Um, there's also some interest lately with um, corporate, international corporate mines coming in and trying to create larger mines, which would essentially result in more habitat destruction, um, impacting the chimpanzees and other wildlife there even more.
0: Are are these underground mines or more of like strip mines where they just sort of go in and clear everything out? Mm
1: -hmm. Um, It it depends on where they are and how deep the gold is. Um, I believe the one that was closest to me was an underground mine. I didn't get to see much of it, unfortunately. Um, I just kind of saw the very outskirts of it, but I believe that one was an underground. But some strip mines are very common as well. Help us
2: imagine what it looks like and feels like in this area of Senegal. Describe the climate and the topography mm-hmm. and what's the forest look like and, and maybe the, the human populations around. Mm-hmm.
1: It's very hot. Um <laughs> Even, even on cold days, it was still very hot. Um, but most of the, the topography and geography, it's a relatively flat region, at least where we were, the farther east you go, the more hilly, hilly and mountainous it gets. Um, it's relatively flat. There's a lot of, a lot of rocks, quite a few big boulders. Um, the forests are pretty, I mean, pretty standard, I, I guess for the Midwest, we have a lot of evergreens, but, um, It's more of a a tropical forest. You have taller trees with, you know, broader leaves and all that kind of stuff. Um, I was there kind of in the transition between the dry and rainy season. So it was very humid for a while. Um, but I mean, yeah, it's, there's a lot of open, open, um, plains and plateau areas, but then every once in a while you get it interspersed with some, just some random shrubs or trees. So it's really a mosaic of habitats, um. It's very at least in the site I was at, it's rare that you have one just solid habitat type for a a long time mm-hmm. um forests it's a little more common, but with like the opener more open areas, mm-hmm. it's usually interspersed with something else um the people there are so nice, they all speak I shouldn't say they all most of them speak. French along with their local language, which was difficult for me because I do not speak French or any local language. Um, but they were all very nice and very helpful in trying to help myself and the other students there who didn't speak the language. Um, and they pick up very quickly with um, you know hand signals and manner, mannerisms and stuff like that. But they were all just the nicest people and so helpful. And it sounds like the research
2: site or sites have been active for many, many years, mm-hmm. and so perhaps these folks are used to having researchers around
1: yeah um so the the village that we are at um we have our own little camp right next to it, but Jill has been with them for like I said many many years, um, so she's used to or they're used to her and her students always coming out and the, um we were about twenty kilometers. Okay, miles, um, about 15 miles or so uh, from town. And the people there, again, so many of them know or at least recognize Jill. So if they see her with other students, they kind of understand that where they're doing, most likely doing chimp research, there are some people that go and do um, cultural research um, in town. But yeah, I mean, people there all kind of recognize us and they're used to Jill and everybody being around.
2: So we've heard about your research. We kind of have an idea of what the forest was like and the local people. Give us some more details just kind of on a personal level. What was it like for you to go to Africa for two months? And, and tell us about where did you sleep at night and, and what was the food like and, and just more of a personal experience.
1: Yeah. So this is actually my second time going to Africa. I was in um, South Africa about four years ago studying abroad. But this was a very different experience, much more rural, very few amenities. Um, I was essentially camping for two months. I mean, we had huts, uh, mud huts and everything that we could put our stuff in, but they were very hot, so we didn't sleep inside them. We had um, wood bed frames with um, a foam mattress that we slept on outside, and then we would just put our mosquito nets up, hang those up above us because we had a thatch roof um, above us, and that was it. No walls or anything, just the roof and the beds. Um, so, yeah, essentially camping for the whole time, um, no running water, no electricity, no amenities at all. Um, so it was, I've, I've camped before, but not for that long. Um, and never in weather conditions quite like that. It was very hot. And if we had, um, rainstorms, it would always be really windy and it would kind of come in. So unless you were in the far back of your hut, you most likely got wet. Um, but very, I guess you could say extreme conditions, but it was very eye opening, very, Humbling to kind of see how other people live and realize just how lucky we are to have everything that we do,
0: yeah. you were researching chimps, but did you have any other animal encounters?
1: um yeah, there were a few um uh some antelope species that we ran into um they moved off very quickly um some jackals, which are kind of like coyotes- essentially um quite a few snakes. Which, I'm usually okay with snakes, but then you realize that the snakes that you're constantly encountering are very venomous, so you kind of get a little little scared by that. Um, those are probably the most common ones we had. There were a few, I had um, some ca- some camera traps out, which are cameras that you can hook up to trees and stuff, and I was able to see some um, warthogs and a genet, which is a kind of wild cat. And a few rodents kind of come up to the cameras, which was really cool, but I never got to see them in person. Um, Otherwise, it was a lot of sweat bees.
2: What's the one story that you couldn't wait to tell your family and friends when you got back?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, Probably the very first day that I was out in the field, I saw the chimps that I was studying. Um, They're completely unhabituated, which means they're not used to humans. So it's very difficult to kind of see them and follow them. Um, but the first, within the first hour of being out on the first day, I saw three chimps and that was my first experience to chimps in the wild. Um, never saw them again after that, but it was just so cool to be able on my very first day I had, I had a plan that I'd written up before I came, but you know, having it in writing and actually implementing it are two very different things. So I essentially had no idea what I was doing. Um, but it was just so exciting to see that.
2: Tell us what you hope comes of your research and um, what kind of impact that it could possibly have on, on conservation.
1: Yeah, so I'm hoping that I can share my research with the people in Senegal. Um, chimps are already protected there. The people there don't hunt chimps for really anything. Um, no bush meat. There's the occasional random pet trade incident, but the people there really respect chimps and they, they're they not targeting them in any any ways um even though this subspecies of chimp is still critically endangered but i'm hoping i can share my information with them and say that even though they're not directly attacking the chimps that their mining impacts and the growth of the towns and villages is still having an impact on their habitat and their survival
2: So I want to talk just a a few minutes about the chimpanzee organization that we support here at the Blank Park Zoo, the Chimpanzee Sanctuary and Wildlife Conservation Trust. Uh, They work in Western Uganda to help folks when they have a problem with a chimpanzee, maybe in their mango tree outside of their house. They work with government officials, teach in schools, and they also run a a sanctuary on an island in the middle of Lake Victoria that has about 45 orphaned chimps, often orphaned um, from results of the illegal wildlife trade and things like that. And I got to go to Uganda in 2013 and deliver 400 pounds of supplies that Blank Park Zoo collected. Uh, They got new uniforms, hiking boots, rain gear, GPS units, digital cameras, educational supplies for the local kids. And now they put in an order with us on an annual basis of what has worn out. And it was such an amazing opportunity to get to go to Uganda and give those Folks who have been working so hard to protect chimps, the pat on the back and the respect that they really deserved. And it was just so great to see their reactions and for them to express to me they couldn't believe that a little zoo in Iowa even knew about their work or cared about their work to conserve chimps in the wild. And uh, just a wonderful experience. And so, again, Just by supporting Blank Park Zoo, a portion of every dollar that's made by Blank Park Zoo goes to projects like yours in Senegal and like the project that we support in Uganda. And I think we just have a couple moments left. Let's talk really quickly uh, about the conservation internship. This Mm -hmm. is an opportunity that we have here at Blank Park Zoo. Basically, every semester we'll rotate through a different cycle for the Blank Park Zoo conservation internship. You can apply online at blankparksu.com And... For just a minute, Christine, tell us about your experience um, and I, I know I'm putting you on the spot a little bit because I was your supervisor, but yeah. what was your experience like being a conservation intern?
1: Oh, it was a great experience. I always thought I wanted to do field research like I did this summer. I never imagined myself wanting to work in an office or anything like that. Um, but I took the internship to kind of gain experience and kind of see a different side of conservation, and I absolutely loved it i Could not have asked for a better internship, better supervisor. Um, The the goals, the tasks we were working on were so great. And I love that, um, you know, myself and the other interns were able to have such uh, a big, be a big part of it and actually have a hand in creating, you know, the campaigns and everything that we were doing. And it really changed my whole career path and what I want to do.
2: Christine, you did an amazing job, and that's what the, the conservation internship is all about. I say it's half for the folks who are involved because you got some great experience, you know, and, and, I, and I'm happy to be a mentor for you and help you with, with your goals. And then Blank Park Zoo gets some awesome, awesome individuals on their team to help us uh, move forward all the work that we do to help save animals in the wild. And so it's been a, a great opportunity for all around. Thank you, Christine, for being here. We really appreciate hearing your story. Thank you for
1: having me. It was great to be here.
0: Well, thanks a lot for joining us today. And if you'd like to learn more about Blank Park Zoo, check out our website at blankparkzoo.com. Well, we'll see you next time on Saving Animals with Blank Park Zoo.